Hello, welcome to Antiquitas, leaders and legends of the ancient world, with Cornell University professor Barry Strauss, military historian, expert in the ancient world, and best-selling author. During this podcast, Barry and his guests will share stories about fascinating and controversial people and events in history and myth. And now, Professor Barry Strauss. Welcome. Welcome back to Antiquitas, Leaders and Legends of the Ancient World. This season, we're looking at three legendary military theorists, Thucydides, Sun Tzu, and Clausewitz. Last time, we spoke about Sun Tzu, the great theorist of war in ancient China. Sun Tzu considered war to be dangerous and something to be avoided if possible by clever use of strategic advantage and to be waged via deception when unavoidable. Thucydides considered war to be a tragedy. It needed to be fought with wisdom, foresight, restraint, and a leadership that used the people's energy without letting their passions guide policy. The tragedy is that once war breaks out, it is unpredictable and uncontrollable. Like Sun Tzu, Thucydides emphasizes the risk of war. Today, we'll look at a modern thinker who also appreciated the tragic sense of war, Karl von Clausewitz. We'll call him Clausewitz. Unlike Thucydides or Sun Tzu, Clausewitz is not a product of antiquity, but of the ages of enlightenment and of romanticism. Like both Thucydides and Sun Tzu, Clausewitz had military experience. Sun Tzu focuses on strategy and operations. Thucydides includes both strategy and also operations and the tactical level of war. Clausewitz is certainly interested in strategy, but probably more interested in tactics and operations. All three thinkers emphasize the role of uncertainty and chance and the need to control it. All three thinkers are classics. You might be wondering, though, why in a podcast called Antiquitas, why are we talking about Clausewitz, who lived in the early modern period? Well, I think the answer is that it is impossible to talk intelligently about war in the West today without reading Clausewitz. Whether we know it or not, we're speaking Clausewitz's language. And therefore, in order to be upfront, in order to be honest with ourselves, we need to spend at least a little time unpacking Clausewitz and asking ourselves, so what does the guy say? And how does that influence how we think today? That's why I always tell my students, you know, if you want to study ancient warfare, you also have to study Clausewitz and, you know, parse him, understand what he can tell us, what he can't tell us, how he is in our thoughts, in our, almost in our unconscious. Once we do that, I think we're much better able to go back and understand antiquity. So that's why I'm talking not only about Thucydides and Sun Tzu, but also about Clausewitz, who he was, when he was, what he wrote, and why he matters. Clausewitz is hugely influential. He was a Prussian. He was born in 1780, and he died in 1830. He was a soldier, an advisor, a reformer, an academic, a historian, and a theoretician. Clausewitz begins his military career at the age of 12 as a lance corporal, and he served in the Prussian army and also in the Russian army. He was an intellectual who never went to university. 
He was an admirer of Machiavelli's Prince. He was deeply affected by the wars of the French Revolution and Napoleon. Like Thucydides and Machiavelli, Clausewitz ends up in bad odors with the powers that be, and he had to carve his own path. He had to make his own way. Clausewitz was influenced by the great intellectual currents of the day. He was influenced by German idealism and romanticism. Clausewitz's most influential work is On War, from Krieger, unfinished at his death. In that sense, he's like Thucydides. He didn't finish his work. And yet, like Thucydides, he left behind something of imperishable value. Clausewitz, like Thucydides, is someone who believes that war is in part an act of heroism. And in that sense, he's different from the Eastern theory of war, which is far more pragmatic. But as we'll see, in many ways, he is speaking the same language as Sun Tzu. He's not entirely different from Sun Tzu. As I've already mentioned, Clausewitz is the most important and influential of all Western military thinkers. We cannot avoid him. And yet, I think it's also important to point out that Clausewitz is often misunderstood, particularly misunderstood by Americans, who sometimes think that they are following Clausewitz when, in fact, they're really talking about a caricature of Clausewitz and not really focusing on what the man had to say. So with that in mind, let's turn now to 10 timeless thoughts from Clausewitz to help us understand modern war. The first is that for Clausewitz, war is not a set of rules nor a set of pithy axioms. I don't actually think Clausewitz would approve of what I'm engaging in. I don't think he'd want his thinking to be reduced to 10 timeless thoughts. Because for Clausewitz, war is less about mathematics or geometry than about the human factor. In that sense, war is very complicated and can't be explained in any 10 rules. For Clausewitz, war is chaos, and it needs to be tamed. As I said, I think we often misunderstand Clausewitz. One of the most famous things he said is that you ought to aim at the enemy's center of gravity. And while that is true, it also gives a misleading notion that Clausewitz has a very mathematical, a very engineering approach to war. He does not. It's much more complicated. And the complexity of war is one of his central points. Yet by the same token, Clausewitz opens himself to being reduced to a series of quotations because he is an eminently pithy, epigrammatic quotable author. So let's go to the second point, which I think illustrates this. Clausewitz says, war is an act of force to compel our enemy to do our will. War is an act of force to compel our enemy to do our will. The three parts of this equation, I think, are all important. First of all, war is an act of force. There has to be an element of compulsion in it in order for it to be war. It's not simply a matter of talking. It's a matter of forcing. Uh, secondly, it's directed against our enemy. And third, the key thing is that we want our enemy to do our will. So if, for example, you fight a battle against the enemy and the enemy surrenders, but the enemy then makes it clear that he's not actually going to do your will, he's not going to give in to you, he's going to go on his merry way and continue doing what you didn't want to do, then that war is not successful. By the same token... If you engage in active force, if you mobilize, if you threaten the enemy, 
and the enemy surrenders and agrees to do your will, then even though a battle hasn't been fought, then that counts as a successful war, according to Clausewitz's definition. We want to compel our enemy to do our will, and there are many different ways to compel your enemy to do your will, to force the enemy to do your will. The third point that Clausewitz makes is that war is like a game of cards. The element of chance is never missing. You might think that you can calculate everything in war, but you can't. There's always an element of chance, and this is something that Thucydides emphasizes as well. Chance is a factor in war that you simply can't predict, and you must always be aware that chance can be present and can change all calculations. Now let's go back to the strategic level for the fourth point. And one of the most famous things that Clausewitz said is, war is merely the continuation of policy with other means. War is merely the continuation of policy with other means. What does he mean by this? He means that war is not simply an act of violence, and war should not simply be fought for the sake of fun, the way a criminal might engage in an act of violence to get his jollies out. But war must be guided by the political leadership. War must always be an instrument of policy. I can't emphasize this enough, that war needs to be subordinated to policy. And that means that war is not merely a matter of tactics and operations, nor is war merely a matter of technology, nor is war merely a matter of political emotions and passions. It always must be guided by reason, and we will come back to this. I want to quote at length a letter that Clausewitz wrote to his friend, von Röder, uh, in 1827. He says, War is not an independent phenomenon, but the continuation of politics by different means. Consequently, the main lines of every major strategic plan are largely political in nature, and their political character increases the more the plan applies to the entire campaign and to the whole state. A war plan results directly from the political conditions of the two warring states, as well as from their relations to third powers. A plan of campaign results from the war plan, and frequently, if there's only one theater of operations, may even be identical with it. But the political element even enters the separate components of a campaign. Rarely will it be without influence in such major episodes of warfare as a battle, etc. According to this point of view, there can be no question of a purely military evaluation of a great strategic issue, nor of a purely military scheme to solve it. Again, I can't emphasize this enough. War has to serve a political purpose, and not just the decision to go to war, but the way you wage the war has to serve a political purpose. You have to calculate what you're doing, how you're fighting, what you will and won't engage in, all based on the question of what you're hoping to attain by a war. You should never go into a war clause, if it says, without knowing how you're going to get out of it, without knowing what the goal of the war is and when the war will be over, when we will declare victory. Often in war, often we see people falling victim to mission creep. They start with one goal in mind, they win something, and they think, gee, 
we can get something more. This is also called victory disease, letting yourself be carried away with your first success. Clausewitz would say, we should never do that. We should always keep the political goal in mind. He says in the same vein, the first, the supreme, the most far-reaching act of judgment for a statesman and commander is to establish the kind of war. What kind of war are we fighting? What's its purpose? And therefore, what kind of tactics and operations will we engage in? It may seem simple, but it's not. There's another way to look at this. We can turn it around, and that is that it is essential in war not to substitute operations or tactics for strategy. It's always a temptation in war to get so caught up with the cool weapons that we have, the cool technology, or the exciting things that an army can achieve or that a military can do. It's always a danger to get caught up with this and not forget the whole purpose is the strategy. And that strategy is always in service of a political goal, of a policy goal. So often we see in history states, armies, militaries being carried away and substituting operations or tactics for strategy. Strategy will sometimes tell us it's time to quit. It's time to cash in our chips, either because we've won enough of a victory or because we realize we can't win. We simply can't carry out our goals. These are the kind of cold, calm, rational decisions that have to be made at the top, and we can't allow ourselves to be carried away um, by the military gee whiz cool factors. Clausewitz takes these points that I've been making and he pulls them together. He pulls them together in what he calls the paradoxical trinity of war. And I'm going to give you two takes on this because he gives us two takes on this. Clausewitz says that war is a paradoxical trinity. In the first take, he looks at it in this way. War is a paradoxical trinity composed of three elements. The first element he calls primordial violence, hatred, and enmity. War, he says, is a blind natural force. The second element, he says, is the play of chance and probability within which the creative spirit is free to roam. So primordial violence and hatred and enmity might get us to war. But once the war is in play, then chance and probability within its limits, that's the arena in which the creative spirit of a military commander is free to roam and has to make choices and decisions and carry out tactics and campaigns. And finally, the third element, he says, is the element of subordination. The subordination of violence and military action to policy. Uh, the element to which war is an instrument of policy, which makes war subject to reason alone. Violence, creative response to chance and probability, and policy. Those are the three elements of the Trinity. Another way to put it is that there's a central dichotomy, and that is violence versus reason. That's the first take of the paradoxical trinity of warfare. Uh, the second take, I think, makes it a little bit more clearer of what Clausewitz is talking about. In the second take on the paradoxical trinity, the three parts of war are the people, the commander, and the government. The people are equal to the passions. The people are the energy 
the emotions, the support that allows a state to go to war. In a sense, this is analogous to what Sun Tzu talks about as the Tao, the Tao, the belief of the people in the mission of the leader. The second part of the uh, paradoxical trinity and the second take for Clausewitz is the commander, the commander and his army, the play of courage and talent in the realm of probability and chance. And Clausewitz says that once a war begins, the professional military must have autonomy in action. In that sense, he would very much agree with Sun Tzu, who believes in the supremacy of the military expert. But And here is the third part of the Trinity. The third part is the government. The political aims are the business of the government alone, says Clausewitz. And remember, Clausewitz says that the war, the military part, and the the passions, the emotional part, always have to be subordinate to the policy part, to the political part, to the government that has to lead uh, the enterprise as a whole. So war for Clausewitz is a dynamic process. It's a process that's in tension between the government, the military, and the people. And to wage war successfully, you have to negotiate this. You have to keep the three parts in balance. My own sense as a historian, looking at various case studies in history, that so often success depends upon balancing the different elements at play. It's an extremely difficult thing to do because our policies tend to be aiming in one direction or another. Very difficult to have this balance. It requires an enormous amount of enterprise, but also an enormous amount of self-control. You have to control yourself to remember that you're not engaging just in what you want to do, but you're trying to control a very complex organism. And war, as Clausewitz keeps reminding us, is one of the most difficult, intellectual, and complicated of all human activities. It is the opposite of the comic version of war, and probably the opposite of the Hollywood version of war. It's intensely intellectual, intensely difficult. That brings us to the next point in one of the most famous things that Clausewitz has to say. Friction. Friction. The ability of things in war to go wrong. The difference between war on paper and war in reality, war in action. In this sense, he's very reminiscent of Thucydides, who talks about how things went wrong once the Peloponnesian War began. Clausewitz says, and this is a great quote, in war, everything is simple, but the simplest thing is difficult. In war, everything is simple, but the simplest thing is difficult. Well, U.S. servicemen have their own expression for this, uh, their own pithy way of putting it, and that's the term snafu, situation normal, all effed up. This is a term bequeathed to us from the world wars, and it's another way of saying what Clausewitz has to say about friction. Another way that Clausewitz puts it is he talks about the fog of war, the fog of war, the way that in warfare, it is often very difficult to see our way ahead, the fog of war. You may be thinking that, gee, that was then and this is now, and we now live in an 
age of smart weapons and high technology, and there is no more fog of war, and there is no more friction. But that's not true, because even now, we cannot know what the enemy is going to do. We cannot predict the enemy's actions. The enemy still gets a vote. And warfare, even in an age of AI, and even in an age in which many weapons, once they're launched, are beyond human control, even now, there are human decisions at play that make it difficult to know what an enemy is going to do. I hope that the fact that war is so technological, I hope that the fact that we have game theory, I hope that the fact that we can do some more predictions will encourage us to resolve our conflicts by negotiation rather than going to war. But as we know, that is not always the case. And even today, violent conflict is still possible. Now, the next point that Clausewitz makes is one that I think makes him very different from Sun Tzu, closer to Thucydides, and yet quite unusual. And that is Clausewitz puts an emphasis on military genius. And this is Clausewitz speaking as a, uh, a citizen of the age of Romanticism, the period in which he lived. For Clausewitz, the way to overcome friction and the fog of war and the difficulty of carrying out a policy is to have a commander of genius, a commander who will engage in what Clausewitz calls artistic innovation and creativity. He says that he wants to have a commander who is capable of sizing things up in what he calls, using the French term, un coup d'oeil, to size things up in a glance, the ability to make decisions in the blink of an eye. And for Clausewitz, the supreme example of this is Napoleon, who he calls the god of war. Now, this might sound like romantic mumbo-jumbo, but in fact, there is a scientific basis for this. Some of you may be familiar with the work of Daniel Kahneman, the psychologist who wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, and who argues, I think quite convincingly, that human beings have two ways of making decisions. One is a slow process of reasoning, but the other is a kind of instant analysis, the ability to instantly size things up. And in fact, it's not just romanticism. It is a very important part of human action. And there are some people who are able to be decisive, who are able to size things up in the blink of an eye, just as Clausewitz says. And a great commander like Napoleon is a supreme example of one of those people who can size things up on the battlefield. So there's an element in Clausewitz that's not simply pragmatic, but that is heroic and is looking for a military genius as a, a way of succeeding in the very difficult activity of war. That being said, Clausewitz is no different than either Thucydides or Sun Tzu in his conclusion that a long war is a very bad thing. The longer a war goes on, the more the possibility, the greater the possibility for things to go wrong. Therefore, the goal in warfare is to do what you need to do, to do what you have to do in order to win quickly. So what do you need to do and what do you have to do? Well, I'm afraid that Clausewitz says that what you have to do and what you need to do is violent and not very nice. He says that kindness in a war is a mistake. 
moderation in war is an absurdity. Now, this is Clausewitz, the Prussians speaking. The Prussians were very successful in war, but they weren't always kind, and they weren't always nice, and they weren't always moderate. But they did win. And at their best, they drew wars to a conclusion quickly and then moved on and tried to build a peace. I guess the supreme example of that is Bismarck, uh, the Iron Chancellor, the Prussian Chancellor who was responsible for the unification of Germany and for the quick defeat in turn of Austria, Denmark, and France. But having won these wars, Bismarck then considered Germany to be a satiated power and wanted to preside over an era of peace in Europe. Alas, it didn't work out that way. Bismarck was fired, and the new German state moved in different directions. Uh, that unfortunately led to disaster. It led to the disaster of uh, the world wars. But I think neither Clausewitz nor Bismarck would have wanted to move in that direction. They both would have said, short wars carrying out political goals that are then used to build an era of peace. Now, to sum up um, many of the things, many of the points that Clausewitz makes, for Clausewitz, war is not mechanical. It's not a matter of engineering. For Clausewitz, war is always human. He emphasizes the moral, behavioral, human element in war. So what do you have to do to be successful in war? What do you have to study? Well, certainly you have to study engineering, and certainly you have to study, uh, nowadays we would say physics, Uh, you have to study uh, higher mathematics, you have to study computer science. You need to know all those things to be a master of war. Uh, But according to Clausewitz, the ultimate purpose of education is not to gain technical experience, not to gain technical expertise, but to develop independent judgment. He says that the best thing that theory can do is to help a soldier develop this independent judgment rather than prescribing rules. So how do you develop independent judgment? What do you need to study? Well, I would submit that the study of history must be at the center of any advanced study of war. If you want to be successful at war, you need to study history. You also need to study politics and you need to study philosophy. But history is essential if you want to be good at war. Now, that may sound obvious, but I think particularly for us as Americans, it is not obvious. We Americans are, by nature, a nation of engineers. We love engineering. We love technology. We think that there's a technological solution to every problem. But in fact, that is not true, and it's a myth that we believe in at our peril. In fact, technology is not the solution to everything. We need to always take a step back. We need to look at human affairs, and we need to study history. With that in mind, now as we're coming to the end, I want to take a step back and ask what we have learned through these three podcasts about Thucydides, Sun Tzu, and Clausewitz. What have we learned, comrades, as the Soviets used to ask? What do they tell us about the state of war today. I think one question that it's very reasonable to ask is, what can they tell us about this brave new world in which we seem to be, in which we appear to be living through a revolution in military affairs, as the strategists and military theory types like to talk about? Are we living in an age in which digital communications have eliminated the fog of war? 
are we living in an age in which artificial intelligence is taking human beings out of battle? And are we living in an age in which there will be biologically enhanced human warriors? Well, uh, I think the answer to all three of those questions is to some degree, yes, we are living in an age of military revolution, and we are living in a period in which war has changed and is changing dramatically. For example, I was just listening to a, a webinar recently that talked about you know, possible scenarios for warfare over Taiwan, which we certainly hope will never happen. And one of the points that was made is that missiles are now smart enough that unfortunately they can easily attack ships moving at 30 knots, which gives us pause when we think about the degree to which the American presence in East Asia depends on aircraft carriers. This is a, a new age. I've talked to pilots of warplanes who've said that we may be moving towards a future in which there won't be any human pilots of warplanes. And certainly we can't rule out the possibility of biologically enhanced human warriors. And yet, and yet, we also need to be skeptical about hype. Just a few years ago, hybrid warfare in which we were told that war of the future would be not at all be like the war of the past. It would all be a matter of information warfare, high-tech weapons, swarming, a battlefield that looked nothing like the modern battlefield. And the gray zone in which we were told, well, you know, actual kinetic conflicts, they're not going to happen so much. War is going to be a matter of information warfare, economic warfare, lawfare, using international law, all these things, and cyber warfare, of course, that will prevent actual kinetic warfare from breaking out. But now in 2023, we know differently as a result of the war in Ukraine. Now we know that something that looks a lot like World War II, something that looks like the old paradigm of industrial warfare, is very much possible. And we need to rethink what we thought were the parameters of warfare today. I think that the study of advanced military technology is tremendously important and will only become more important. And yet it has not replaced the study of social, political, and strategic dimensions of war. I think we need to go back to the basics and study the history and classics of military thought. And we need to remember when thinking about the possibility of war in Taiwan, we need to ask, for instance, what would the purpose of such a war be? What are the political goals? What are the policies that war might advance? How can we advance those policies? How can we pursue those policies without taking the dreadful step of engaging in war whose consequences are incalculable and could be disastrous for all involved? So let me leave you with three takeaways. Let me propose three takeaways from the three thinkers that we have studied. First, from Thucydides, the limits of calculation in warfare. War is unpredictable. War is unpredictable. And we can never be sure of where it is going to lead once it begins. From Sun Tzu, I would say that the key takeaway is what he calls sure strategic advantage, dynamic potential. Before going to war, set things up so much to your advantage that 
it is possible to win the war, as it were. It's possible to carry out your goals without actually having to fight a battle. This, uh, I think that Clausewitz is very much in the same vein when he says that war is an act of force that compels the enemy to do our will. If you can compel the enemy to do your will without having to fight a battle, then you have carried out the acme of what Sun Tzu calls the art of war, and you have also carried out Clausewitz's definition of what war is. And finally, third, I have something that comes simply from Clausewitz. War is a paradoxical trinity. It's not just about what the military commander wants to do, and it's not just about the emotions, the passions that are aroused in the public. It's also, and above all, it's about the policy, the political goals, reasons through the government calculates as the purpose of war. It's about all three of those things, the balance of all three of those things. If I put all three of these thinkers together, I would say that the bottom line is that all three agree that war is about what Thucydides calls the human thing. War is about the human thing. War is less about technology and less about weapons than it is about the human thing. So I'd like to leave you with that lesson. Thank you for listening to another season of Antiquitas. I really enjoyed speaking to you, and I hope you enjoyed listening. As I said, Thucydides, Sun Tzu, and Clausewitz very much informed my thinking in my most recent book, The War That Made the Roman Empire, Antony, Cleopatra, and Octavian at Actium. For my money, the Actium campaign is a case study that exemplifies what each of these great thinkers had in mind. It is an example of the unpredictability of war. It's an example of the importance of gaining strategic advantage, of setting up the playing field so that it works to your advantage rather than you having to go uphill. And it's also an example of the fog of war, a friction of the way that things can go wrong in spite of your best laid plans. Well, these three thinkers, Thucydides, Sun Tzu, and Clausewitz, are also very much in my mind as I work on my next book, which I'm in the process of researching and writing as we speak. The working title of this book is Rebels, Jewish Revolts Against Rome. I'm very excited about this study. It's an overview uh, and sometimes a very detailed account of two centuries, about two centuries of history, from about 40 BC to 135 in our era. It goes from King Herod the Great down to the end of the Bar Kokhba revolt. It includes the great revolt of the Jews against Rome, uh, and also a lesser known revolt, the Diaspora revolt, but it also talks about the origins of Christianity. And it talks about what is probably the most famous statement that a Jew ever made about Roman rule, Jesus' statement, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. So it talks about the Roman Empire. It talks about Judea. It talks about the Jewish response to Roman rule. It talks about these great revolts and their terrible consequences. And it talks about the rise of Christianity. Uh, it's a book with a great strategic overview, with a geopolitical dimension from Italy on the one hand and Iran, yes, Iran on the other. 
And it's a book that I think will have lessons for understanding the world today and even some of the conflicts in the Middle East today. So I'm very excited about it, and I hope that you will find it interesting as well. As I said, it's greatly influenced by my study of history, especially my study of these three great theorists, Thucydides, Sun Tzu, and Clausewitz. Well, thank you again for listening, and I hope to meet you again soon in another season of Antiquitas. Lush Life.